This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series co-founder and producer Paul Ingalls, today along with series co-founder and today's interviewer, Suzanne Kreider. Today, we acknowledge the conflicts that surround challenging mental health issues. We have a panel discussing how to lessen the stigma around commonly named mental illnesses, such as depression, schizophrenia, and psychosis, as well as how to support someone appearing to have a mental health challenge in public, for example, on the street, in a building, or on a bus, or in our family or circle of friends. The program also looks at the conflict in mental health care over the diagnosis and treatment of the 450 mental disorders listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, known as the DSM. This standard reference from the American Psychiatric Association lists caffeine-induced sleep disorder, Alice in Wonderland syndrome, and mathematics disorder, among others as, quote, mental illnesses. And some wonder, are they really legit illnesses? We'll introduce our panel as we go, but first we'll hear from Sanjit Sahota, a licensed social worker with a master's degree in a private practice in California, who also was himself diagnosed with a mental illness. He talked with our Suzanne Kreider. Sanjit, our program is about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, so we want to know what the conflict is around mental illness. It seems like it could be about in the person a conflict or in the healthcare community or in the culture. Where do you feel the conflict is? Um, the conflict can be in actually all three of those areas. I mean, for me, part of the conflict within me was whether to disclose or not disclose, what type of relationship to disclose in, when to disclose. All those things came in, and I think that that comes into a lot of people's situation because of the stigma that's out there that really plays an impact in regards to that because it's almost like when you share, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm going to be defined by my illness as opposed to looking at me as a whole person. So I think that's a very sensitive issue. And Sanji, what do you want to say about your own mental health? The conflict that I had was whether to take medication, whether to not. I went through three hospitalizations struggling um, with that decision. Eventually, I came to terms and took it um, because I had to stay out of the hospital to build any sort of life for myself. Um, but it was not um, an easy uh, decision to come to. Having said that, though, when I finally got a close relationship with somebody, somebody who could transcend a professional relationship and offer me love and care, and this was more important than their job to see me get well and walk alongside me in the community and help me to garner the things that I needed to get well again, it was within that relationship that I was able to get well. Had I not been offered that, I think I still would have been stuck and hopeless. Somebody carried the hope for me until I could believe in that hope for myself. Sinji, you're a trainer for LEAP. Correct. L-E-A-P. What, what is LEAP? Uh, LEAP is a method of communication that builds a type of relationship with somebody that is emotionally close. LEAP stands for listen, empathize, agree, partner. For example, let me say that 
somebody says to you, I'm not sick, I'm not mentally ill, I don't need these damn medicines, what I need help with are people upstairs who are flushing the toilet to communicate with those who uh, are trying to kill me. So instead of saying that's a delusion, that's a hallucination, we need to put you on meds, you don't go that route. You say, let me see if I have you right. You're not sick, you don't need these damn medications. What you need help with are the people upstairs, they're flushing the toilet to communicate with people who are trying to kill you. Did I get that right? So they don't get that. Without that, you can't build a relationship because that's what's most important to the person. That's what is on their plate. That is what's more distressing. And to build any sort of relationship with them, you must make their opinion feel understood first and foremost. And it's like, that sounds terrifying, is it? And say, yes, it's really scary. If I was in your shoes, I'd feel exactly the same way I think anybody would. So that's where you start to build a relationship. It's based on ultimately respecting their opinion first and foremost before saying anything about what you think. And then once the relationship is built to a certain point, you can start to share your opinion and they take it much with much more weight because it's developed through this relationship where they respect you because you respected them. And you always have areas to agree on, you know, whether that's, okay, let's figure out how you can keep your apartment. Let's figure out how you can get back to school. Let's figure out how you can work. Those are the things that are important to let's Let's work together and see what best helps you to do that. You don't mention anything about, oh, let's decrease this symptom or that symptom or this symptom. You know, it's more like, okay, the uh, aliens are really bothering you. They're saying that they're going to really harm you. Would you like to take something to help with that anxiety? Because I see how overwhelming it is. You know, you don't, you don't go off like what you, uh, the, the language, you know, that a professional uses. Well, I love shoulds. I have like long lists of how the world should be. And I know that it might not be there yet. So let's say... Someone's listening to our program right now, and maybe they think they have a mental illness or they think a family member or a friend has mental illness. What should they do? I think that, in my opinion, number one, I would get the book. I'm not sick. I don't need help. Because then they learn the type of communication style to best relate with their loved one. Okay. I'm not sick. I don't need help by Javier Amador. The style of communication is the absolute key, and that will teach you the type of communication to relate to your loved one. Let's imagine you've used the leap for three months, and suddenly the other person is becoming violent. What do you recommend? Um, in that situation where the individual becomes violent, you have to protect yourself, you have to protect them. Does that mean you would call the police? Um, you call the, they're called mental health like crisis units. That's who you call. And they're trained um, in assessing people who suffer from these sorts of conditions. Sometimes if there is violence there, yes, a police officer, a trained police officer in mental health will come along, along with, let's say, uh, a social worker or MFT who assesses the situation. So violence, of course, is one of the criteria you know, that you take somebody in on grave disability or suicidality. And it's, it's not easy to get somebody hospitalized, you know. The, um, it's, it's pretty difficult, but violence is one of the uh, pretty black and white issues. This is a hard one for me about suicide because 
How does one know when to intervene? I mean, one thing that they say is based on prior suicide attempts. Another thing they say is whether an individual actually expresses a plan that they have in place to uh, attempt that suicide. Those two things, you know, can really play into it. Then uh, you should take action. You know, I can tell you, you know, my own story. Yeah, I went through periods that I definitely felt suicidal, that, you know, that's the only solution, that's the only solution. You know, but I never had a plan to do it. You know, there were thoughts that came and go, thoughts that came and go, thoughts that came and go. But I never put together any sort of uh, plan that this is how I'm going to do it. And so those are two things I'd mention. Yes. Sanjeet, it sounds like some kind of hierarchy that we're just continuing in our culture. The hierarchy is in terms of who gets care, who doesn't. Rich people get care. Poor people don't get care. It just seems like this hierarchy. I was going to use the word caste system, but it seems like every culture has some kind of caste or hierarchy system. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely true when it comes to mental illness. The type of care, the quality of provider are so important uh, for a person's recovery. A lot of times, unfortunately, you know, when somebody doesn't, isn't able to afford that, the, the quality of care is poor. And as a result of that, you know, the ability to recover is more difficult. You know, it should be a level playing field. Unfortunately, you know, that's not the case when it comes to mental health care. Sanjit Sahota is a licensed social worker in private practice in California. We'll hear more from him later in our program, and you can hear Suzanne's entire interview with him on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for our February 2020 episode about addressing mental health conflicts in our society. Next, Suzanne talks with Theta Newbrest, a founding board member and master trainer for the Native Wellness Institute. She earned her BSW and MPH in health promotion at the University of California, Berkeley. She talks in a moment about how in the Indian community, there are certain kinds of mental illness, or what's called a mental illness, that are treatable. Here again is Suzanne Kreider. Thid Newbrest, tell us your tribe. Sure. Nistu Amskapi Pikani, in my language, I'm what what you call the Blackfeet, and we're part of the Six Tipi, the Blackfoot uh, Confederacy. We have three tribes in Alberta and a million and a half acres in the state of Montana, um, known as the Blackfeet Nation. With Native Americans, um, the colonization process and the racism and sexism, ageism, and that kind of infiltration into um, our families has caused a certain kind of mental illness that's treatable. Um, And so it it has to do with oppression. So to bring back the mental health, you just undo those things. And uh, in that order, undo the formula. So a lot of it's um, bringing back rites of passage, bringing back the language, bringing back the storytelling, bringing back um, the genesis a way that their ancestors, their stories of creation, their ancestor stories of behavior. And so most tribes have many stories that a children 
um, that children listen to, you know, from the time they start with lullabies, they sing them lullabies, and then they start telling them stories. And it's just like how kids watch, you know, um, video games and play games now, then they learn how to behave. And so you can undo the mental illness with the culture. So I learned um, prevention very early, and I've been doing this for four decades, and I've just seen people who have diagnoses like um, manic, depressive, post-traumatic stress disorder, chronic fatigue, um, extreme depression, and and some of the diagnoses that are given to even schizophrenia, lupus, the um, natives get these type of diagnosis of the body, the mind, and the spirit. And I can see as they heal, they put away the drugs and the alcohol. They start to sun dance, fast, go into steams. They lear- relearn their language. They start dressing indigenous. They reclaim. Um, they get um, their name, their native name rather than the IRS name that we have to use with a social security number and they heal and you no longer see the mental illness anymore once they start to reclaim with the culture. Let's talk about the Native Wellness Institute because I know you do lots of work for them and you also did a documentary called um, Why Women in My Family Don't Drink Whiskey and in the documentary you say there was a trauma tattoo on my soul. I'm guessing that other people, natives, Indians, have a trauma tattoo. Talk about what the Native Wellness Institute does for Indian souls. What you've described sometimes is um, what we're finding with epigenetics. Epigenetics is the study of what is um, brought down in your DNA. So, for example, if there has been, like in a lot of our tribes, in my tribe, we 150 years ago, we had the Bear River massacred with our people. Gatlin guns were set up and they just murdered, you know, 95% of a camp of families in teepees. And if you've had that type of trauma with grief and loss, like you also have here in Alaska, that can leave a genetic marker, and that's what I'm calling the tattoo. And if mm. if that's brought down, then you're genetically hardwired to um, either respond to that trauma. That is being studied. It's kind of like um, a good way to explain it in a short story is some of the, the science around it is they do, we don't do experiments on humans, but I think they do in prisons. But they've done a lot of mice studies where they uh, let the mouse smell cherries, the smell of cherries. And they shock the mouse at the same time. So every time they have this smell of cherries, they electrically shock them, which is very, very painful. And then... The study shows that when those mice have offspring, they never shock those offspring, but they just let them smell cherries. And when they smell cherries, they go into anxiety, some into panic attack because epigenetically there's a marker or a tattoo 
of trauma. It sounds like a replacement. So if people are inheriting through epigenetics this feeling of distrust and this remembering of colonization, it sounds like you're replacing that idea so that more and more um, generations can have a more positive, trusting outlook. Is this what's happening, and are you seeing any changes? Yes, you know, it's been amazing. I mean, in this, just in this four decades, I was just with families where when the mom and dad sober up and they're clean and sober and say they have like 20 years, 25 years, um, you can see it in their children and their children making better decisions. And now you see families. We see a lot of young people who just choose never to drink and never use drugs, first of all. And then what you see is them go through the natural maturation process. So one of the indicators is we just have, you know, 20, um, 20, even 20, 25 years ago, we had very few PhDs. We had a master's level. And everywhere I go, everyone's getting their PhD and their master's level and they're being creative. They're going to art school. You know, they're going to become a lawyer, they're going to become a doctor, that we have in our community, we have a lot of registered nurses from our community college. So you can see once you start to bring harmony with the parents and you do the deeper healing where they have forgiveness, forgiveness is key, forgiveness of what happened in the past and letting it go. And then you just see their grandchildren. I saw it this week. You could see the grandchildren that were being raised in the homes where the parents and the grandparents were present. And those kids are thriving. They thrive. You know, they go on and they're curious and they live long. We'll have more with Theta Newbrest later in today's show. And you can hear her complete interview with Suzanne Kreider at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for our February 2020 episode. As we continue to gather observations about how to reduce mental illness stigma, a marriage and family therapist offers his thoughts. When we continue with Peace Talks Radio right after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, with all of our episodes dating back to 2002. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider, who's doing interviews to explore where there are obstacles and stigma in how we address mental health issues and what some best practices might be. Next, Suzanne visits with Kermit Cole, a marriage and family therapist in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who works in a team to consult with couples and families who have members identified as patients. His work in residential treatment, largely with severely traumatized and or clients labeled, quote, psychotic, has led him to an appreciation of systemic philosophy and practice as an alternative to a focus on individual pathology. Kermit Cole talked to us from his home in Santa Fe, and Suzanne Kreider asked him the same question she'd asked Sanjeet at the start of our program about where he saw the main source of conflict in treatment of mental illness. The conflict, for me, is in thinking that any of these things are independent of the other. And the conflict arises from the impulse to just immediately zero in on one notion of what a problem is, and following that on one notion of how to how to respond to it. It sounds like what you're saying is it's more about the relationship between people than it is like a certain person. Well, what I want to say is it's it's about the relationships between things. Okay. Uh, yes. And the reason I say that is because I am not ruling out that the problem that we're dealing with might be driven by any one of a number of physical problems from low blood sugar to an undiagnosed thorn in the foot, to something wrong in the brain. Um, I think the problem comes from starting with that, that, with that last one, as, you know, this going to that. It sounds like you have heard of this chasm between anti-psychiatry and pro-psychiatry. There are these two movements. Our program is about peacemaking. So I'm not saying we'd get rid of this chasm, but... What do you see as a resolution between these two movements? Well, as far as the mental health issue goes, it's about reclaiming the distress that we experience as humans, as a human problem. It's not hard to understand that things that do or don't go right in our relationships sometimes drive us to the brink of madness. And that the, the madness that we've all probably experienced at some time in a stressed relationship is actually really not very different than the madness that we ascribe to others uh, under the label of, uh, of a psychiatric disorder. Um, and I, I can say this having seen it, having seen people who were on the brink of, of psychosis. I've experienced it myself in relationships. Or people who have been called psychotic, who once we resolved the, relation, the relational issues and the, rela- the history of relational traumas that they'd experienced, weren't anymore. But sometime in the last decades, a wall went up between things that we understood to be normal human stress and pain and something that we called uh, psychosis. And anything on the other side of that wall, we are ready to give over to psychiatry and psychiatry is ready to take it. Uh, So I've found myself having to fight for the right to work with people who were judged by others to be quote unquote psychotic. And I, I had to develop means to get that recast so that I had the right to do it, to work with them. You know, we have this chasm now where as soon as somebody is called psychotic, then they're just judged to be beyond the reach of normal human you know, therapy, normal human relationships, uh, you know, the, the, the reach of friends. What 
is Open Dialogue. The name Open Dialogue, it's what this, the standard of care in the psychiatric system response to mental health crisis in a particular area of northern Finland after they had been at it for about 10 years or so and you know had developed a, a cohesive uh, system of response to mental health crisis that, that they could call their own, they named it Open Dialogue. Another way to understand what Open Dialogue is is that it's based in a particular philosophy of what madness is, which is also based on a particular philosophy of what being human is, which is that to be human, uh, to be a functional human being, involves being in a functional functional and fulfilling relationship and and dialogue with others. Kermit, you've referred to people who are perceived as mentally ill as similar to whistleblowers because they might see something we don't see or they see it in a different way that we don't see or can't see. Why is this important for peacemaking that we listen to people who see things differently. Well, maybe one way to think about that is that um, if we're only listening to people that we already understand, then we're going to be missing a lot of things. I mean, I think another element of being human is that to the degree to which we're able to weave in all the perspectives that are available, we're going to have a much more elaborated, fully you know, multidimensional view of our world. We're going to see into the past and into the future. We're going to see around corners and we're going to see over the horizon. And if the only perspectives that we're able to integrate into our understanding of the world are the ones that we already understand, then ultimately we're in danger because something's going to come at us from an angle that we're not ready for. And so as, as in terms of making a peace, a world of peace, the better we get at being able to hear and incorporate all the perspectives, even when they're disturbing or frightening, uh, the more peaceful it's going to be. One of the stories I tell a lot is somebody I was talking to who um, was trying to tell me that aliens had given him the cure for cancer. And uh, so we went around a lot about that. He was very eager that I would agree that this could have happened. And then at some point I said, well, I, I really could, can't say whether it had happened or not. That's not my expertise. Uh, but what I'm interested in is what it would mean to you if it had happened, if you had the cure for cancer. What would that mean? And he said, well, then, and he just blurted out, well, then people would really like me. And that went right into my heart. You know, and then I thought, oh, that I, that I understand. And I looked back in that moment at all the things, and the huge things that I'd done in my life, just in the hope that somebody would like me. And some of which worked out well, and some of which worked out terribly, but you know, for the most part, you know, worked out okay. And, uh, and I realized, but some of them were just as crazy. I was just lucky that I happened to zero in on some way to make people like me that, that you know, that worked. And um, he was unlucky and picked uh, aliens giving him the cure for cancer for whatever reason. But I can say that as soon as he said that, the whole tone changed and the subject never came up again. And we just talked about baseball. So the incentive is to just as well as you can try to listen for what it might mean to a person if the thing they're saying were true or could be true. And often there's, you find that there's a really good reason to have tried to hear that. You know, I think the problem with psychiatry for me is that it seems to offer solutions that seem to be certain and seem to promise, make the promise of absolute safety and, and results. And I don't think that that's actually true. I think it's 
if we if we're thinking in terms of that the possibility of creating a world that's perfectly safe anybody that's telling you that they can give you that is lying they're trying to sell you something what i'm saying is the world is an inherently unsafe enterprise you have to choose whether you want to be in it and which involves taking the risks that sometimes you might get hurt i have taken risks with clients who i fully expected would be violent and were i didn't do it because i conned myself or anybody else into thinking that i had an answer that was going to prevent that i did it because as a matter of justice i've had every good thing in life that a person could ask for and this other person hasn't and therefore for me it was justice to take the risk and that's why you do it because i i'd rather hope for the good things that i think can come from this choice than choose the bad outcomes that come from the other choice because of the system that we have and some of the time those risks come to be realized as actual dangers to me that have cost me at this point half of the money that i made last year defending myself and trying to keep a license that i'm very proud to have in some ways but it actually constrains me sometimes from being able to respond in the way that i would wish uh, because the insurance company is driving our response and basically what that means is that we can only frame our response to a situation in terms of what is understood to be wrong within an individual and i have to give a diagnosis and it makes me sick often to have to do that because it's not that sometimes i can find a diagnosis that doesn't have a traumatizing effect but usually not usually it's a diagnosis that i i really would rather not have to give for any reason because the situation is about what's going on between people the solution to the problem has to do with what's going on between people even if it's a medical problem going on the the solutions that we find are are in the relationships and the strengthening the relationships and helping people figure out how to navigate their futures together that's Kermit Cole, therapist from Santa Fe, New Mexico. He was recorded talking with us from his home there. We have a bit more with Kermit Cole later in our hour, and you can hear Suzanne's complete interview with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com in our February 2020 episode. Let's circle back to hear a bit more from each of our guests now and start again with Sanjit Sahota, a licensed social worker with a master's degree in a private practice in California, who also was himself diagnosed with a mental illness. He has more to say about the power of personal connection with any caregiver who's trying to help someone who might be dealing with a mental illness. They did a uh, T-board, and they on one side they put how to treat your client with mental illness. On the other side, they put how to treat your best friend with mental illness. And what worked was the best friend model. Okay. And that's what worked in my own recovery, too, because sometimes I felt even more stigmatized by professionals than the general population. The focus was more on my illness, my symptoms, my staying out of the hospital, you know, as opposed to what was well about me. You do have an unusual position because you're also a provider as well as a person with mental illness. And some providers and people are against medication. Sure. What do you feel about that? Um, I can understand. I don't look at it as a black and white issue. I think that, yes, in some cases, you know, people who have similar symptoms 
can do okay without medication. There's there's other ways to cope. There's the hearing voices movement, you know, where I got some, I went to do a training with them, you know, and they're more primarily, you know, not using meds. They're more, how do you cope your, with your symptoms without that? And I think that for some people, they can, I think, that use that and be okay. You know, I know some individuals who have been able to do it. On the other side of it, I think there's also cases in which medication is more of a necessity, you know, to recover. And I've had several clients who initially were, no, I don't want meds, I don't want meds. Eventually, you know, when I was able to work with them and decided to give it a try, you know, they took it and things were alleviated. And then they got awareness and insight into, okay, you know, I see what was troubling me and I see this connection with the medication and they decide for themselves, you know, to stay on it. Sanjit Sahoda, you are a master's degree level social worker in private practice. I'd like to hear your opinion about this uh, link, it's wrong, incorrect link, between mental illness and violence. What is your reaction? Well, if you look at the statistics, you know, the population at a whole, you know, those not with, quote, mental illness, you know, are the population as a whole is much more violent, you know, than um, people with mental illness. I do have to say, though, in a small subset, you know, of people with um, psychotic disorders, you know, schizophrenia, there can be increased violence without without treatment. But generally, people within that population, you know, they isolate, you know, they seclude themselves, they because they're so fearful, you know, as opposed to necessarily becoming aggressive. But, you know, if you use LEAP to connect with that person, you know, you have a chance to make a difference in their life so they don't go in a route of uh, violence because they have close relationship with somebody as opposed to everybody telling them you're mentally ill, you know, you need medication, you experience hallucinations. Then they become extremely isolated and alone when their parents, their friends are telling them that and they go into just their own world. And it's a very isolating place. I mean, you look at, you know, the population of how many people with schizophrenia, you know, commit suicide. You know, it's high. You know, it's very high. But those, those who have relationships in their life, you know, it's much lower. I need to wrap up because we're probably out of time. But you're, this is really interesting to me. And I feel like there's a continuum of mental health. And if you're not right in the middle, then you're out. Okay. <laughs> it's something like, you know, creatives or spiritual experience or disability. It's like, sorry, you're out. You're not quote-unquote, statistically normal. And I feel that's unfair. Yeah. And even in treatment, you know, there's there's a variety of ways a person can get well. You know, some ways work, work better for individuals than others. I don't think it's also clear black and white. Like, it's only this. This has to work for this. You have to fit in that, and that's it. You know, I think that there's combinations of different methods that work. I think sometimes a different method, you know, outside of medication can be more effective. You know, it depends really on the individual. I think in some cases it is required, but I think all avenues need to be considered. 
Sanjit Sahoda is a licensed social worker in private practice in California. And remember, you can hear Suzanne's entire interview with him on our website, peacetalksradio.com, under our February 2020 episode about addressing mental health conflicts in our society. We'll take a quick break and then have some more conversation with our other guests, Theta Newbrest and Kermit Cole, when Peace Talks Radio continues. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the principal project of the nonprofit organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. You can find out more about what we do and find a way to support it at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook, sign up for a monthly newsletter at our website, and subscribe to our podcast at iTunes for free. Today, our Suzanne Kreider is talking with a panel of people whose piecework is trying to improve how we help our brothers and sisters who might be dealing with a mental health issue. Theta Newbrest works largely with the Native American communities, where, as she described earlier, mental health issues are often tied to the genocidal history toward Native Americans in our country. More now with her conversation with Suzanne Kreider. And so if we want to talk about incident with tribes... Mm. In some tribes, um, like where I'm working in Alaska, it's very, the alcoholism is very high, meaning over 50% of the people, once they drink, will develop alcoholic behavior. We're now um, seeing, and it's because these, the alcohol, the, the fentanyl, the oxycotton, all of the Vicodin, all of those types of drugs, it helps numb the historical trauma pain that people are feeling. There's type of ceremonies in each tribe where we try to doctor that individual and bring them back to harmony. It's all about bringing harmony back. So Native Wellness Institute, what we do is we do just, uh, we call it healing. We don't, you know, do all kinds of um, English words that are hard to define. So we, we help people learn to talk about it. We help people learn to feel about it. And we, help, we do trust building because with the trauma and the mental, the mental illness and the behavior is all about not trusting outsiders because they repeatedly have um, tried to genocide us and attack us. So then... You, you first have to, because um, what happens, you know, epigenetically is that you might have self-doubt. So then, like with the missing and murdered and indigenous that we have now across, um, you know, across the United States and Canada, 
it's about um, recreating an atmosphere where girls are cherished, girls are protected, girls, uh, women are sacred, women are life givers, women are your mother, women are your sisters. And so Native Wellness does a lot of, um, we have curriculum, one's called the Healthy Relationship Curriculum. So it's not only the romantic relationship, but it's their relationship with God, their creator. It's the relationship with siblings. It's their relationship with coworkers. We do a lot of work with wellness in the workplace, having teams trust each other more so that it's harmony in the workplace. Faith Newbreast, I'm hearing your approach with groups of Indians. And I wonder about our listeners who might only interact with an Indian like once a week or once a month. What would you say in terms of this issue of self-doubt or lack of trust? What can people who interact with an Indian once in a while do differently to promote more peace around mental health? I would, um, you know, a lot of times when you meet an Indian, you know, there's a lot of romanticism around Native Americans. Or we have a lot of wannabes where they want to be like us or they, they um, you know, they don't want to be like other races, but they want to be an Indian. <laughs> and so <laughs> if you want to interact with a Native American, you know, and just see what's going on, you have to take some time. You know, you have to take some time where you listen and don't over ask questions. Just like listen to their stories. Like a, a leading, you know, just say, hey, where are you from? Where are you from? You know, um, and then tell them where you're from. You know, it, it and start the conversation. And I would, if our listeners want to, I mean, of course, Native Wellness, we're just one piece of the puzzle. There are a lot of people doing this work, but um, we're an all-native board with all-native staff, with all-native consultants, because it really helps us um, not think non-native. And um, I would, um, you know, if you see an Indian person, like um, like when I walked into the studio, everybody just greeted me and treat them cordial. Think, go back to civility, you know, just civil where you listen to people. And um, you, you talk about stories because – and talk for real. Don't, you know, just like – you know, on real talk is where you just talk about the weather and sports. <laughs> talk, you know, talk about, you know, your two-year-old, you know, what's your two-year-old learning? You know, um, the Uber driver that I came in with, you know, we were talking about his four-year-old and five-year-old. Get to that level because – you learn 85% of what you're going to use in life by the time you're five. And when we start to influence and make it a world where diversity is appreciated and diversity is allowed, um, and a lot of it, you know, it, it has to do with we're all we're on learning racism. And in, we're right in that right now. Our country is learning a big lesson and I, I do believe in the end we're going to have more harmony where people accept diversity. And when you accept diversity, you'll see the mental illness start to um, vanish. Theta, how about the combination of like Western ways with Indian ways in terms of treatment for mental illness? How do you balance that? 
I think that has high success if you have a bicultural person. And um, there's a, a Blackfeet um, doctor, Dr. Sydney Stone Brown, and she actually has 10 different um, assessments to see where a person is at in their assimilation or their adaptation to, you know, America. And, um, and she really does assessment, like if you've been raised traditional, then your, your healing plan has to be traditional. But if, say, if you've been raised and you know nothing about your people, don't know the language and you're just starting out, then your healing plan will be a little bit different about reclaiming. So we see that often. We see often, um, you know, young or old people, the first step to reclaiming and healing is to get your native name, to get named um, and to start to do the ceremonies attached to it. So in some communities, the goal becomes just make sure that if you got 10,000 people, make sure they all got their native name. And then from there, you know, make sure the other rites are passage of, you know, when young girls go from girl to women, young boys go from boy to, to men, that you also have those ceremonies where you, it's like you kind of like surround them and then you just fortify them so that they can become good people. Theta Newbreaths, what have you not said that you want to say? I haven't, maybe I haven't asked you about it. What else is there? You know, um, I really believe that we're at a time where all of us have to see how we can reach our hand halfway across the table to the other diverse people and be civil and begin to look at how we can approach climate change how we can approach uh, racism or any of the isms, and that um, we start making peace with each other. Are you saying that we can sit down and only reach halfway across, not further? I think. Well, I'm saying that in the sense because um, most um, non-natives don't even sit down with us. And I, I'm using it symbolically that, you know, there has to be maybe not even a table, but that you actually shake hands, you actually listen, you could hug, do some hugging, you know, do some eyeball mm. to eyeball is what I'm saying. And that's, you know, the agoxtamon, the decision-making process or the circle courts, that's what seems to be bringing back harmony. And I think for our nation... Once again, we have prophecies where, you know, the Native people will be leading. Um, your constitution in America is based on an Iroquoian format. Yes. We helped you write your constitution so we can help you again become a democracy. You can hear more with Theta Newbreast in her complete interview with Suzanne Kreider. You can catch that at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for our February 2020 episode. Let's wrap up today with a few more comments from marriage and family therapist Kermit Cole, who spoke with us from his home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Again, here's Suzanne Kreider. There's an anti-psychiatry movement, and I notice Wikipedia says it's both an unequal power relationship between the doctor and the patient and a highly subjective diagnostic process. So are you part of this anti-psychiatry movement? Well, the, for sure, there's psychiatrists who think that I am. Um, I don't think of myself. I'm not anti-psychiatry. I think that, you know, there's a long 
noble history of psychiatrists who, you know, it's the word started, the word, the word itself means uh, healing the soul. I have nothing against healing the soul. Um, I'm all for it. Uh, and historically, there have been lots of, of approaches to that taken by people uh, under, the, under the, you know, the heading of psychiatrist. Um, and lots, lots and lots of good work. And today there is lots and lots of good work by, admire, by psychiatrists that I you know, admire and respect. I think the field in, uh, as a whole uh, has you know, fallen into a rabbit hole of and with and but at the same time has accrued an outsized proportion of power um, so that once a psychiatrist is in a room where a mental health crisis exists all eyes turn to the psychiatrist for a final determination and I've seen really terrible things happen because of that because of people who you know psychiatrists are given both a lot of responsibility that they may not actually wish to have and a lot of authority that they may or may not be able to handle well. Um, I've been in positions of power, and I know how hard that can be. Uh, so with sympathy, I am saying that people in the role of psychiatrist uh, have a challenge um, in our world. What's the tips you would give to our listeners to listen to people you don't understand? Because that's a big leap. You know, on a certain level, that's going to have to be a matter of personal choice. You know, so coming to understand the reasons that you might want to do that uh, is good. Uh, I can say from my experience that almost every time I've had been able to have the time and space to listen to somebody that was seemingly, you know, scary or, or, or didn't make sense or saying things that I just, you know, couldn't immediately agree with, when I could make the space to really hear and listen something came out that really started to make sense to me that was very deep, much deeper than my initial thought of what they were trying to say. Uh, usually it was something that touched me in a way that I realized was very, I could really empathize with. Um, another example I, I give a lot is um, I happened to, actually I went to business school for a little while, and there there's a, they show an example when the, when the space shuttle, the Challenger, uh, blew up um, before it was launched. There was an engineer there who was saying, "We, we're in danger. This is, there's a risk in launching here because it's too cold." And nobody paid attention to him. And nobody. There, there was a real drive to launch that shuttle. And NASA was embarrassed about the fact that the shuttle hadn't been launched in a while, and it, the, the the culture shifted to people having to uh, assertively prove that there was a reason not to launch where the culture had been, that you had to assertively prove that it was safe. But there was a, sh a subtle culture shift had occurred. And then and without people realizing it, and this man was trying to communicate and say, you know, basically, I can't prove something bad's going to happen, but it would be wrong to launch when it's this cold. And people were just, you could see in the transcripts, they were ignoring him, they were putting him back on his heels. And his language became increasingly strident and bizarre. And once that happened, once his language became bizarre, you could see people basically laugh, dismissing him. He appeared to be crazy, and of course, and then the shuttle blew up for exactly the th reason he was afraid of, and he ended up leaving NASA. You know, having to leave, couldn't continue working there, and spent the rest of his life building up procedures for businesses to be able to hear the the, the lone voices like his. But he never worked as an engineer again.
And that's the danger. It sounds like what you're recommending is give people time and then listen for something that they say that really touches you. But what if people don't have time for that? I'm thinking of someone like in the public space and they're seeing someone do something that they would perceive as mentally ill. And a fear comes up. They're afraid for their own safety. They're afraid for the safety of the other person. What would you say about that? Um, well, first off, it's real. Uh, you know, I, I, mean, I have a lot of my work has been in trying to differentiate being afraid from actually being in danger. And a lot of the success that I've experienced is in, in that, in finding ways to say, you're basically saying to people, what are you really, truly afraid of here? And is that really, you know, is that really, truly a danger? Uh, you know, um, or is what you're afraid of, basically, that your son isn't, isn't on the road to having his own IRA, uh, you know, vetted, vested IRA? Um, <laughs> That's scary. Yeah, because that's that's a very real but very different problem. It's not a problem you medicate or hospitalize. It's you know it's a different problem. So you but once people realize that, then they they basically their stress level would go down. They would start to relate differently and perceive each other differently. And sometimes very good things would come that wouldn't be driven by this you know atmosphere of needing of immediate crisis resolution. Kermit Cole, let's talk about the DSM. The American Psychiatric Association has a book of diagnoses, and it's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, also known as the DSM. I'm a little nervous about these, what they call mental illnesses. I saw in the list they have insomnia, bereavement, nicotine withdrawal, Lots of other things. Are these really true mental disorders? Well, you know, I could I could come up with uh, I could create a disorder, call it a podcasting disorder, <laughs> uh, and based on the you know evidence that I have available, you certainly meet the criteria for it. Um, you know, you are absolutely without question meet the criteria for podcasting disorder as I have, you know, as I have um, defined it. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah but, uh, <laughs> Thanks. Um, and there's a lot of people who, you know, have a reasonable argument that podcasts uh, are not a particularly healthy uh, development in our world. I, I, I'm not one of them. I, I listen to them constantly. Um, but, um, but there are people who make the case. And that's basically what the DSM is. It's people who have made cases for different things being disorders. The original DSM was, you know, a benign instrument of communication between researchers. Uh, in the beginning, uh, you know, the frontispiece had an admonition to not consider these, any of this disorder, dis, these disorders to be, you know, known and en disease entities, uh, not to use the book in a court of law, etc. Uh, that, of course, has been, you know, ignored uh, from the get-go. Um, but, um, you know, a few years ago, uh, when, around the time, that, just before the DSM-5 came out, the head of the NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, resigned and mentioned that the DSM had been a completely failed enterprise in terms of 
ferreting out the truth of mental disorders uh, and that we needed a whole different approach. Um, there's a lot of people who do feel that way. I once put together something that I called uh, the DRM, which was Diagnostic Refrigerator Magnets. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, get, you, you can use it to put together your own disorder disorders using all the same words that the DSM uses. It's a lot of fun. Um, well, what, Karma, what do you think is the solution? Well, there's a, there, actually today on Madden America, uh, Madden America uh, put out an interview with uh, um, Sarah Caymans and uh, Peter Kinderman. Uh, Peter Kinderman is part of the British Psychological Society, uh, and he's been hard at work with some other very good people, Lucy Johnstone, uh, on creating the argument for an alternative approach that doesn't include diagnosis. Basically, the, you know, the, the catchphrase phrase is, you know, we don't need diagnoses to understand what human beings need in a crisis need. You know, it doesn't necessarily help us. Uh, I think if you use them thoughtfully, which for me means just, you know, using different lenses to look at the situation, but not zeroing in on one, just different lenses can be helpful as long as you don't decide that you have the one that is the only answer. Well, that's a cool idea, no diagnoses, but what would happen with health insurance? Because don't you need some kind of code or something for health insurance to pay back? <laughs> uh, well, that, that is the, that is the uh, key problem. What do we do with our, with our, with our system of response to mental health care? And it, I don't know that I have an answer to that. In fact, I don't know, uh, I'm at a point where it's increasingly difficult for me to consider even continuing to do this work uh, because there are so many, I find myself in so many situations that are ethically unresolvable. Listen for Suzanne's complete interview with Kermit Cole and the full interviews with all of our guests today at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can also find pictures, lots of links to other resources, partial transcripts, and more all at peacetalksradio.com. You can also donate to help continue this work in this program, as many of our listeners do. We're also grateful for the support of KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.